The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibilities for the stories contained herein. I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough, a podcast that aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and in turn our community. Welcome back to another episode of the Enough Podcast. I am Kendra Sheets. And I, of course, am Rich Gill. And we are here today with two guests. Uh, We have Karen and we have Sean. Karen, can we start with you? Can you give us a little bit of information about yourself and uh, explain to the listeners about how you got involved in music in the community? That's a broad question. I'll start with the boring stuff. My name is Karen Barth Menzies and I'm an attorney. And I have practiced uh, for probably close to 30 years now, uh, representing plaintiffs in trial court cases. I represent survivors in sexual assault cases, and most particularly in the music and entertainment industry more recently. Got involved in the music community. Wow, that's going way back. So I am a punk rocker from the 80s. And uh, yes, did I used to have purple hair? Yes, I did. Would I still have purple hair today if I could and did not be in court? Yes, I would. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah, I, I, I can say that, you know, once a punk rocker, always a punk rocker. If you got into it for the, the reasons that, that I think we all did. Politics, social justice, feminism, individuality, nonconformity. Karen, I do know that that you had a chance not long ago for your love of music and your legal profession to merge. You guys may or may not know, but Karen plays the bass in a band called The Dissenters after the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's right. On a dare, I um, was dared by a bunch of women lawyers to take up the bass to join The Dissenters, uh, the band is named after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it's made up of a bunch of women lawyers. We perform every year in Aspen. Now we're uh, starting to perform in Las Vegas as well, but it's just to a bunch of unsuspecting lawyers who are surprised to see us up there. But we have a great time. That's so cool. I'm sensing maybe a tour should be in the works. uh... (laughs) Merch, merch. Merch, yes. And Sean, can you give us a little information about who you are and what is music in your life what is music in my life well so i'm a litigation consultant i had to pay somebody to tell me that i had a chance 12 13 years ago to get involved in a big case as a media consultant because i you know digital communications because social media was new enough then where it was something that we had to address when we were dealing with a high profile case i didn't know really how to do it but I'm good at making stuff up as I go along. And we created a policy and I learned what was ethical and proper when engaging in extrajudicial communication in lawsuits and found that I loved it and that I loved the law. And I was already married and my kids were well on their way and I just don't have the energy to go to law school, but I've had a chance to do a lot of the fun fringe aspects of practicing law and sort of be a partner and a coach and a consultant to some amazing lawyers who do fascinating work in justice. And I get passionate about fighting power and representing people who feel powerless. I like to talk a lot, but more importantly, I'd like to 
amplify the voices of other people who sometimes maybe no one's listening to. That's how I got involved in it. Now I'm addicted and I can't stop. When it comes, <laughs> to, when it comes to music, music is a driving factor in my life. I listen to Spotify <laughs> probably 16 hours a day. It's always on. I aggressively curate playlists. I, you know, my wife bought me a guitar on my 30th birthday. I learned how to play it. I wrote 10 songs. I think that's all I had in me. I will share them with no one except for my children <laughs> and my closest of friends and my bride. But anyways, it, it's, uh, it's always present in my life. Karen, a question for you right off the bat. You come from a punk rock background and so often people sort of involved in that subculture like we all are, are like, you know, fuck authority, fuck the mainstream, like we're doing things on the outside. Uh, but you're actively changing things from the inside, which is, I think, you know, nothing more punk rock than that, fighting for the people while being, quote unquote, part of the system. I appreciate that. Yeah, I can tell you that on so many levels, the system that we have available for accountability, for justice in the world of sexual assault, re-traumatizes uh, the survivors, unfortunately, in so many ways. And I feel like I've tried to just take a, a very honest and straightforward approach with clients, potential clients, and just survivor advocates generally and be realistic about what, what's achievable in this system. And I can tell you that in my experience, survivors all too often are not actually listened to. And that's the voice that needs to be heard. Uh, we have these preconceived ideas. We put things in the hands of the justice system and the criminal system. The state stands up against the predator. The survivor, she's just a witness. She's off on the side and then she's you know tortured through processes of depositions or testimony in court, it's really truly unfair and glossed over because the voice that we should be listening to more than any is the survivor. And when you talk to survivors about what does justice mean, you know, we all assume, oh, it's vengeance, it's revenge. I want to crush that guy. I want to cancel that guy. Never have I ever heard a survivor say that. That is not what survivors are seeking. They're seeking accountability and recognition by the community, not just the predator, that they were harmed. And that's the message that we've got to try to get out in whatever avenues we have. And right now, the system's not set up in a way to do that. What we've noticed over the past few years of doing the podcast and pre-podcast, just within the music communities in which we spend our time, the survivors as you stated, are not seeking revenge on someone. They are asking for accountability. Sometimes we've seen people say, you know, until they are held accountable, they should remove themselves from this community before something else could happen to someone else like it did to myself. And that's where I think the idea of quote unquote cancel culture, where because you're not taking accountability, we're asking that you do these things to keep everyone else safe. No, that's exactly right. And it starts out with uh, one person who has the courage to speak out, and then others who it's happened to inevitably see that, and they come out to support each other. And then the numbers start growing, and the survivors start to realize, this didn't just happen to me. The original people who speak out, it is always because they want to stop the predator from continuing to abuse others. 
that's the reason. I mean, because nobody would invite the kind of backlash that survivors get when they do speak out publicly. You know, this idea, oh, they're, they're just trying to get some attention. That is the worst kind of attention you can get. Nobody would invite that on themselves. Survivors gain the courage enough to speak out because it is a start to their healing process so they can take back control of the control that was taken from them by the predator. They can start to have a voice and start shedding some light on what happened. They get other survivors who come forward. And I think the cancel part of it, the protest part of it in a show and otherwise, is to force everybody in that community to see the reality of who this person is. Survivors fundamentally want accountability because if the predator takes accountability, then that must mean hopefully that they won't do it again. Lawsuits don't come until much further down the road. I mean, the legal justice system, that's why predators have benefited from the, the laws nationwide for, for decades because the statute of limitations is so short. And for trauma survivors, especially sexual assault trauma survivors, it can take decades for them to really even be in a place where they can confront and start to look honestly about what happened to them. It's incredibly difficult. And that takes time. The science in the field is finally beginning to recognize that and understand that. And that's why we see legislatures opening up the statutes for you know, a particular time period, the window statutes, or even extending the statute of limitations for 10, 20, even 30 years. And in criminal cases in some states, getting rid of the statute of limitations altogether for these types of crimes. You know, in places that have a statute of limitations and cases can be filed, that's just another thing that Oaks holds and that whole, oh, they're just doing this for clout. They're just doing this for a, a cash grab. A lot of times there's, there's no court case to be had because it happened so long ago. And it is a case of, I'm tired of seeing this person just either continue to victimize people or just going about their life as if nothing happened while I'm living with this thing that I can't ever walk away from. And just wanting, like we keep saying, accountability. And, you know, we've seen it on a large scale and on smaller scales, but it just takes that one person to say something. And then there's always more after that. Like you said, it's no longer like, this is just me. It was my fault. I'm the only person this happened to. No, you're not the only person because very rarely is it just a one-time thing. And for so many survivors, they hold it inside for so long. And the reality is, is their life gets filtered through that trauma when it's not addressed. I've one of my clients described it like to a point where she was able to actually say it out loud and realize she didn't just die. She was so afraid to say it out loud because she just thought the world was going to crumble. She was so scared. And then she said it out loud. And then she said it to one other person. And then she said it to a few other people. And she started to realize and get more perspective on it. And she describes that as the beginning of her healing process. Regardless of whether there's avenues for litigation or advocacy through social media or organizations, the fundamental goal that we have in our efforts is try to figure out how we can give a survivor her voice back. 
because that's when the healing begins. Even if she keeps it quiet to a select group of people that she trusts, where she feels safe, that can still be the beginning of the healing process for survivors of sexual trauma. I want to jump back really quickly to statute of limitations in general. I think most of our listeners probably have an idea of what they are, but could you give uh, kind of a brief summary of what a statute is and also why do certain states have them? Why do they exist? Are they beneficial? How are they not beneficial? Give us a, a quick summary. <laughs> okay, a, a quick lawyer land summary. Um, yes, please. <laughs> yes. Uh, it has to do with evidence. Uh, legally, if you're going to bring a case, whether it's in criminal court by the state or in civil court by a plaintiff, you have to be able to prove your case with evidence. And the statute of limitations is designed to protect the opponent, the defendant, the other side from stale evidence. So it compels a person to come forward sooner rather than later out of fairness so that when the plaintiff, for example, comes forward, the evidence that may exist on both sides is still there, is still present, and it's not so long ago that it's all disappeared. It's, it's really kind of puts plaintiffs and the state on notice that if you're going to try to pursue a claim, you need to do it within a specific amount of time so that both sides have access to evidence to either present their case or defend themselves in the case. But it's not realistic in the context of sexual assault cases because it takes so long for survivors to be able to understand what happened and to be in a mental place where they can take on that fight. Because it is a fight. Even if you're going to the criminal courts and you're putting it in the hands of the justice system, you still have to present, you have to be interviewed by however many detectives you have to be interviewed and testify on the stand in the civil cases. The other side gets to do what's called discovery to be able to develop evidence to defend themselves. So it's a very difficult process. But I think more than anything, the reason the statutes are unfair is because the difficulty mentally to overcome the hurdles a survivor faces with self-blame shame, and society now defining them based on sexual assault, based on what happened to them and forgetting everything else they know about them. You know, the other thing with that is, I've brought this up before, but what came out in Minneapolis a couple of years ago is there were 20 years worth of rape kits that were untested that were just sitting in warehouses. So that's evidence that wasn't even processed, that they didn't even do anything with it. Yeah. And just doing a rape kit alone is, can be traumatic, just mm -hmm. the process of going through it. And so for survivors to find out that that's been just disregarded, again, that's part of the re-traumatization that survivors suffer through. And I'll tell you, predators know when the statute is. They know when it's up, like to the day. And that's not unusual. That's in what we do in the legal world. That's unfortunately common. So where survivors have no idea, of course, they're not thinking about that kind of stuff. They have no idea they even have a claim. They don't even necessarily understand the legal definitions of consent. That's the most common misunderstanding I get when I talk to, to survivors. The predators know. They know when that clock is, is up. And a lot of times we'll see predators will string the survivor along 
during that time period, stay friends, be friendly, kind of watch them in a way because they know that, you know, this could potentially be brought against them. And then once that expires, then up, oh, they're in the clear. And that's what these window statutes are trying to address and rectify. It just sounds so nefarious. Like it's so fucking gross. What are you talking about nefarious? When I started working with Karen and I'd see the claims in different cases, it was bizarre how similar the behavior of the predator was in each of the cases. And you don't need to go through very many of them to recognize, oh, that's grooming behavior. And that's what so-and-so did. And in cases that go on for a long time, you can see that the predator got better at it. They honed their process. They have a mark that goes on. And one thing that you talked about, Rich, earlier was that there's always another survivor. Once you've found that someone has that grooming pattern, the only way they've developed it is by practicing it. So you know there's others. And I've worked with survivors with Karen, and I see it. I believe them. But then once there's a lawsuit out there, or it's public in some way, and then I find out that someone's reached out to that survivor and said, this happened to me too. Or even more, someone said, it happened to me and I'm willing to speak up also. The recognition or the affirmation I felt on behalf of the survivor that I've dedicated myself to advocating for is difficult to describe. I can't even imagine what it feels like for the survivor. Well, I can say that there was a situation that I experienced where I was with someone, we're hanging out for the evening, things started to get kind of strange, things started to get kind of forceful, and I was able to remove myself from the scenario before anything really terrible happened. Years later, I had a friend who had become friends with this person. I kind of distanced myself from her. One day, she kind of contacted me out of the blue. And uh, she was asked if I wanted to go grocery shopping and hang out with her, which was a very strange ask from someone that you really don't see besides like going to shows every once in a while. And I was like, yeah, I guess you don't have a car. I have a car. I'll drive you around, go grocery shopping. No big deal. Got her in the car and we made it about six blocks away from her house before she started talking to me about how she no longer speaks to this person. Something very bad happened a few years before and she just she was going through therapy and it just started to kind of work its way through her brain. And she realized that this person had raped her. As she started telling me the story of the evening that the event happened on, it was A, B, C, exactly what would have happened to me. I got myself out at D, F was where he raped her. And then I found out a few years later that there was a person that, ha that existed in this kind of chronology between the two of us, where he had gotten one step further from me. So it's just it's this very thought out, well-practiced pattern that these predators undergo and they try it out on people over and over again until they get to kind of whatever the, the our idea of the end goal is. But I can say that when she was talking to me and telling me this whole story, I started like answering with her. I was like, and then this happened. And then this happened. Wow. And she looked at me with this relief, but also kind of panic look. And both of us in that moment kind of experienced what you were talking about, Sean, where there was a connection there where you just know someone had experienced something that you have and there's no way to really verbalize exactly what that is going to be like, but you just kind of look at each other and you know. And Karen, you've told me that survivors often feel uh, self-blame, and a lot of that evaporates once they learn 
the pattern of a predator. Yeah. If you look up grooming and the steps of grooming, you can Google it and you start reading that. This is an, a real thing. And Kendra, what you just described, you described it happening with one particular person you had in common. Even across various different survivors, like whatever steps you're talking about that you and your friend talked about is probably similar in some ways to the same steps all survivors realize and recognize their predator did to them too. That's why survivors can connect in such a meaningful way. You know, when we believe survivors, you need to believe survivors, but survivors have this unique ability to understand each other and not from a place of trying to be as empathetic as possible. And there's value to that. But, and that's why I think it's so important to have, you know, women involved in these cases as well, because unfortunately it's sexual assault. I think it's one in four women um, have experienced sexual assaults and harassment. And so I saw it in your face when you just described it. You talk to another survivor, even if it's not the same predator, and you start to realize, oh, that happened to me too. That happened to me too. That happened to me too. So now not only do I believe that other survivor, I actually understand. I understand what happened to her and I understand what happened to me. And that's the kind of community recognition and understanding. That's true accountability that's hard to come by. It's hard to get, but it, why it's so important for, again, I'm going to go back to it, survivors speaking out because it's how they help themselves and it's how they help each other. Uh, I'm sure Kendra can speak to this as well as I can, you know, without fail. After every episode that we do, I'll get messages or DMs from people who are like, oh my gosh, I just listened to the new episode. And I felt like they were telling my story. Like, that's exactly what happened to me. It's at the same time heartbreaking, but also it gives you such hope that like, this is now someone that realized someone else went through what they went through. And I talked to survivors about that. I call it the bittersweet truth. It's so sweet to understand and learn, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not alone. But it's just so awful, on the other hand, to think, oh my God, I'm not alone. But if you think about that, and we're talking about one in four women, if they were able to band together, like we've actually seen in um, one specific episode, which came out this year, a number of survivors came forward across the country and the world. And these, I believe all women, have formed an international survivor network where I see them commenting and posting and spending time with each other on social media. They've never met each other before. Two of them are going to be meeting each other at a show upcoming in the next month or so for a band that we've also had two of the members on the podcast. Like it's this kind of, like you said, kind of a bittersweet reason to come together with someone. But one of the things that we have talked about in prior episodes with other guests is specifically for punk or kind of a small subgenre, it's not just a hobby. Punk music specifically, at least for what Rich and I have discussed, has outlined so much of how and why we live our lives the way we do. And we've talked about the community that comes with it that's very different than other hobbies, very different than other sects of music. We don't just go to a concert every couple of months. We're out at shows every few nights, keeping up with small bands. And I feel like when you take the passion and the vigor of someone who's that interested in music, 
you're moving that over into empowering people who have gone through some of the worst shit that you could possibly go through in your life and had your autonomy taken away in a certain aspect. But if you're able to meet someone or form a group or a survivor network, like we've seen with some of the people who have listened to the podcast or been on the podcast, you're unstoppable. I mean, they're such strong, wonderful individuals. I'm, I'm at a loss for words, so I'm just saying more words. <laughs> well, I, I, I hear your words. And what's resonating with me as you say that, Kendra, is you're taking me back to being a rebellious kid and somebody who didn't like the powers that be dictating how you're supposed to think how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to dress, who's boss, who's not, who's inferior, who's superior. I don't know. That just really fucking pissed me off when I was a kid. I hated it and I rebelled against it. And I found punk rock music because there's an element of anger to it. And I think that that's like what you're describing is for us, music isn't just something I want to go hear that sounds nice and I want to dance to it. It is like helps me express so many of those what would be perceived by the moral majority as negative attitudes. And, you know, no, I'm going to go into a slam dance pit that I feel safe in and I'm going to fucking let it out, you know, and I'm going to let that passion be there and be angry about injustices. And I'm going to say something about it. I'm going to listen to bands that are saying, using their voice to say something about it. And that's, you know, to me, totally parlays into my work representing survivors. They are angry that they're not believed. They're angry that they're not heard. And they're angry that our society just tells them to go away. You know, we don't want to deal with it. That's just uncomfortable. You know, like, why don't you get over it? That was so long ago, you know? It isn't that like they're angry because they want to go hurt somebody else. These aren't violent people, but they're frustrated and they need to be able to express and, and have that voice to say, this is not okay. And all you people around here who continue to glorify this person and, and continue to enable them and give them the kind of power to treat people like they're nothing and just throwaways, no, this is harmful. It's toxic. This happened to me. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that this person doesn't do it to somebody else. Now I'm all, now I'm all fired up. <laughs> I'm fired sorry, up I, was, too, Kendra. I was at a loss there for a second. I was just so mesmerized by what you were saying. Uh, <laughs> fired up. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. oh, come on, Kendra. I love how you guys describe what squares might think is counterintuitive, uh, punk rock being a safe place, right? But in all music, there is a sense of community. No matter what kind of show you go to, it's weird how there's a certain type of person it draws. You can tell that the, all these strangers who don't know each other, they have this artist in common and there's other values they share in common because they find that in that music, right? And so I find that every concert, for the most part, is a safe place because you're with your people. And then what's particularly nefarious about assault in the music industry is that it's a violation of that safe place where people's guards... And then the artists have this magnetic charisma, and when they are predators, they can abuse that. So you've got somebody who's disarmed in a safe place, and then they use their power, which is amplified in that circumstance, and abuse it. We've covered that before about someone who gets on a stage, like you mentioned, Sean, can turn something on. It may not be their offstage persona, but they can switch that switch back on, and it's like they're up there in front of the mic again. And they can do that 
off stage one-on-one with a person and they use that charm and charisma in a very predatory way. Those folks often are making a lot of money and they're probably making their promoters and their record companies a lot of money. And Karen, do you find that it's the businesses and the executives behind it that either know or should know about that behavior, but turn the other way because there's profit there? Oh, yeah. They know. They know. And the, and the music industry in particular is the perfect breeding ground for this kind of behavior to be enabled for commercial purposes. So you've got this setting, this stage, these lights, music that people feel to their core. They're in that moment of passion that music can bring out in people and their guard is down. And there's all these eyes up on that stage and you feel like the person singing to you. And so if you get isolated out by you know, the person up there on the stage and now you feel, you feel like you know them. You feel like you can trust them because you've been following their music for years, especially kids who have like listened to the music, you know, in very impressionable years. So you already feel like you're in a safe place with them. I can't even put a date on it, but there was some time in there where corporate America realized how they could make a hell of a lot of money on music and music became commercialized. We started having all radio stations being owned by big corporations. There was no independent radio stations anymore. That was like, this is big bucks. This is big money. And so the labels, the publishing companies, the entire music industry realized, wow, this is an absolute cash cow that people are going to be throwing money at. And we've got the centerpiece of our rock stars, and we're going to like keep that cash cow going. And we're going to let that cash cow have anything he wants. And we're going to keep him happy. And one of the pictures that, I, you know, that gets painted, I think, so inaccurately, and that is that, oh, I've got a bunch of groupies banging at the bus door trying to get in. That's not how these cases play out. When we're dealing with sexual assault in this context, more often than not, we have a stage manager, a band manager uh, being signaled by the, the predator on stage. Who, which girls he wants brought back, whether they're going to be allowed how far back, selecting them, looking out the curtain, saying, oh, I'll take that one, that one, bring her back. And, you know, the girls are like, oh, my God, I get to meet this guy, you know, and then are just like served up on a platter. You know, it's like get the rock star whatever they want. Let's make them happy because then they'll keep performing. People keep paying to see them. And then we make a lot of money. The perfect example is R. Kelly, you know, when he got arrested, exactly who I was thinking of when you were talking about the backstage thing. (laughs) Yeah. like, And the reality is, is so he gets thrown in jail and what happens to him, all of his his music increased, the sales increased. So who benefits from that? The record labels, the publishing companies. So they don't care if that guy gets jailed because they're still making more money. To use a word that I feel like we brought up a few times now, the other nefarious thing about that is with the commodification of music and companies getting behind it, they're marketing this towards the tastemakers, which are more often than not young women, young girls, who then become the victims in all of this. You know, it's interesting, the other thing you were talking about with the, you know, pointing people out in the crowd to like a stage manager, a tour manager. I was just thinking of that story with Van Halen with the different colored backstage passes that they would hand out to women or girls in the crowd depending on who wanted to take them back to the bus. And it's just like, 
so gross. Just like using using your fans as you know, like they don't even matter. Yeah. But I think also like we're, we're talking on a very large scale for, you know, R. Kelly, Van Halen, you know, stage managers and backstage passes. We can bring this down into a very DIY type of situation as well. Well, we might not have two or three levels of security that someone has to go through. We have people, you know, meet your favorite musician at the bar. They're done with their set. They're going to walk over to the bar and you are just absolutely fangirling out that XYZ is at the bar and you can buy him a drink or they buy you a drink and then you start chatting. No matter how small or big your production is, there are other people that should be held accountable for what that one person does or group of people does in a predatory manner because not one person only is aware of the goings on. There are going to be others because of the way bands and artists function while on tour, while playing shows. I mean, it's just the way that it is. Well, and Karen, the lawsuits don't just name the predators anymore. They they name other people who are known to be involved and often leave room for those who may be discovered to have been involved. Is that right? Yeah. So the the window legislation that we were involved with working on as well, from the legal sense, if we hold the predator accountable, that's incredibly important. But the predators aren't the only ones complicit in the picture. And so when we worked on the legislation, it was very important to recognize those in power, the enablers. And if we want to actually change the industry and make it safer, then we need to change not just the predatory behavior, but all the industry entities that are supporting and enabling, looking away or even actively helping the predators. It's very predictable. Like what you just described at the bar is the same as what we might have with, you know, some famous rock star um, with three levels of security. There is a differential in power and there is a measure of trust that's being taken advantage of. So whether you're talking about the boss in a company who takes advantage of a younger employee or a uh, inferior employee, whether you're talking about in the military, you know, officers and lower ranking, whether you're talking about clergy cases, the predator is somebody who has a higher differential in the power equation. And the survivor, the victim, places trust into the person and the predator takes advantage of that power dynamic. And so when that trust is broken, especially when it's a child, but even when it's uh, an adult, the trust is broken. The person with the power took advantage of that survivor, assaulted them. And now that's one of the hardest things for the survivor to get over is the betrayal of trust and being able to get to a point where she can trust again. I think this is a good segue to the punk rock therapist. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with that and your role in that is? Yeah. So I've been working with survivors for some years now um, in the music industry. And so I actually became aware of the founder of the punk rock therapist, Christina Sarhadi, through your, through your podcast. We love Christina. <laughs> She's the best. Yeah. So one of my clients told me and some of my colleagues, we all work together as a team, 
that she had heard your podcast and she was like, oh my God, you got to listen to this podcast. It's right in line with, and she's also a very uh, big fan of punk rock music as I am. So we resonate on that level as well. And so we listened to the podcast. The first uh, episode I listened to was Christina's and frankly, I was blown away. I was um, just delighted to know that this even existed and there's a platform for survivors to come forward in this in this safe way, but also in a community that supports them. And so when Christina came out with her story, as you all know, it just within days and weeks following, there were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus women who contacted her saying, me too, and saying this happened to me. Many of them, um, it included her predator was the, the one who assaulted the women. And she Christina, you know her. She's just a phenomenal person. Um, she's a therapist herself, and she is just remarkable. I can't even try to describe her. I got to meet her in person uh, a couple months ago, and I just was blown away. Like her presence and her energy is beyond compare. Um, Christina kept getting contacted by all these women and had a makeshift sort of community that she created to sort of help everybody come together and support each other. And she works. Uh, with Samantha Maloney, who is herself a total badass, um, former drummer, and our exec, lives and breathes the music industry in LA. And I've known Sam for a few years now. And so Sam and Christina connected and were just realizing like, oh my God, this is turning into something so much bigger. Christina's already providing support in these conversations. Is there something more that we can do to offer this community to be helpful? And they came up with the punk rock therapist. And they brought in another woman as a graphic designer who herself is a survivor, a phenomenal woman, um, Carrie Crome. And they brought me in uh, in my involvement just to help, you know, with legal questions. Really, I've got the most boring role. <laughs> but, but, but I'll go back to what we've done with the punk rock therapist and want to continue to do and grow is to bring it together women, many of whom are survivors who have their own independent talent and skills and magnetic personalities and capacity for giving in their own specialty. So for Christina, it's her ability to be an unbelievably amazing therapist. And Sam, Sam's got the knowledge and energy and know-how the music industry and how do we amplify our voices in a loud way. And Carrie's role is is she's the creative, she's the artist, she brings things to life visually. And I'm there to answer questions on the legal front. And, and what we're trying to grow it as is a group of survivors who are not defined by their assaults, recognize that they were assaulted, but also from there come together as a group and do good, bring specialties from our own lives and expertise, experience, share that with each other and grow together as a group in a community, not just to support people through sexual assault, but to answer questions on all avenues. Christina's heard from people who specialize in financial advice, people who specialize in you know, career counseling, people who specialize, whatever your role and job is. It's pretty remarkable. I, I feel like the, the sky's the limit um, uh, with these two. And when you put Christina and Sam Maloney together, really, there's no stopping. <laughs> Christina is like support for your spine mixed with like a calm brook at the same time like she's supportive yet very calming where you feel like you've got this because she's around 
And Sam is like shotgunning two monster energy drinks. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you imagine putting those two per they and they look so well together, yeah. which is like the interesting part. <laughs> yeah. There's a they're a force to be reckoned with. And like you said, including <laughs> that gentle side of it too. It's it's really amazing to see how those two have worked together. And they've really only known each other for a few months. Right. It seems like years too. It does. <laughs> A theme that the punk rock therapist shares with your show is that communities and networks end up forming around it and out of it. And since I've been working with Karen, you know, we had this sense early on that there needs to be more support. There needs to be more networks. There needs to be more community. The survivors I've seen process the trauma in different ways talk about it in different ways that some do art often they want to have a voice uh and what i love about your show is that i think the more people who can have access to it they begin to see the patterns that we know exist right yeah and, and you totally. don't have to file a lawsuit to learn that predators have grooming patterns and that some of the the feelings of self-loathing that might happen are not uncommon uh to learn that it's not your fault that the things that a survivor thought they might have done that contributed to the assault were, in fact, planned by the predator in grooming and that other people share that. Like, like there's so much that can be done in just uh, sharing that together. Uh, it's very powerful. So when I, I know when we found out about this, I, I was really excited for Karen to be on it because I, I want more and more people to hear that. And I think, too, the broader the audience, I want more men to hear these kind of conversations too, because in the end, it's often in these cases, the men are the predators and they're in a position to recognize that behavior and stop it and speak out against it and not allow it when they see it happening with people they know to stand up and help others have their voices heard. Yeah, definitely. And another thing with the punk rock therapists that you brought up is having people who have these different things that they're good at because when it comes to sexual assault it's not just the assault that happens and then that's it like there's all these other things there's the mental health stuff maybe it was someone that you work with so you left your job so you need to find another source of income there's potential medical issues that could come from it so there's all these other things involved, and I think it's great that you mentioned that the therapy is a big part of it, and, but there are other things too. So to have this sort of well-rounded group of people behind it is incredible. That's great. One of the fears about for survivors in coming forward publicly is that people will look at them differently, and people will think of that when they see that person from now on. And even if just on the most minimal level of the punk rock therapist, you have a bunch of survivors coming together who are anything but defined by the predator or the assault that occurred to them. It shows you a much more well-rounded person and you can see, you know, wow, this person's being productive in these ways. Here's how she handled this. I can learn from that. I have a future that does not have to be defined by a past assault. You know, running the podcast for the past two years, I thought I had an idea of everything I had dealt with prior and then hearing people's stories while I was going to therapy 
And now while I'm currently in grad school to be a social worker, lots of stuff is shaking loose that's in there and I didn't even realize it. But one of the things I was always concerned with before was the more people knew, the more I'd be looked at as a victim. Whereas I've realized through the course of the last few years with the podcast, talking to other survivors, it's not going to be something that I can erase ever. The situations that I have had to go through and, you know, all of the different trials and tribulations that have accompanied them, um, including mental health issues. But now I kind of look at it like you were saying, Karen, with, you know, I'm doing all the things that I do, plus I'm dealing with this thing that is never going to fully let me go but I'm fucking handling it and I'm a survivor, not a victim. And so this is something on top of all of the other stuff that I have going on in my life. And there's this network of people I can talk to and they understand what I'm going through too. It's such a relief and it's so energizing in so many ways as well. It's life-changing. It is. Yeah. Sean, something I want to go back to that you said about more men listening to the podcast and being informed about this stuff. Is this because I always talk shit on you for being a straight white man, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> you want to bring this up, really? <laughs> no. But no, you know, when Kendra approached me uh, with the idea of doing this podcast with her, you know, I had done advocacy training and I had had way too many uh, women friends of mine come to me with stories of things that had happened to them. And the interesting thing is, you know, coming into them, like, I've done advocacy training, like, I know all this stuff, but over the past two years, I found that I still had blind spots with some stuff. We all do, I think. Totally. Yeah. And it's a constant learning and how we talk about trauma and assault and grooming was never something that we talked about 20 years ago. That term wasn't in my vocabulary at all. So, Or gaslighting. Or gaslighting. And yeah, doing this is just like, constantly learning and learning how to be a better person and, you know, speaking out for people and also just giving people a platform. And I think that's the big thing with at least what we do is letting people tell their stories and giving them a place where they can safely say whatever they want as much or as little of their story as they want. And I think, Kyron, that's kind of like what, what you've relayed as well, too. Like, you are trained to navigate the legal system in ways that everyday people would not be able to, but you kind of get them through the different levels so they can speak and explain their story and they have the support that they need to do so in the platform that's going to give them some sort of healing. Absolutely. Uh, information is power. I've believed that forever. And people are willing to listen to survivors, they will tell us what they need. Going back to your, you know, more men need to hear this kind of stuff. And I agree with that. And a lot of people, men and women on, and non-binary, everybody feels that I don't want to get into this conversation because it's uncomfortable. It's like, no, just put aside your own discomfort and be present and willing to hear, willing to truly listen. Because that's not what survivors normally get. And Opening my own firm in this way, what compelled me so much are the women that I represent, the survivors that I represent, and I was trying to describe like how I see it. In my world, I try to picture, you know, a survivor when, when she's still hidden and buried deep and can't face it. It's a cold, dark place. 
And when she starts to just have a voice, starts to say even to herself and then to the next person, that's the slow process of her coming out. I always equate it to like a caterpillar coming into a butterfly. And once she starts speaking, it's the voice that brings her out of that dark place. Uh, her voice being heard and starting to take control and her power back. And then she becomes free, beautiful, able to fly and be herself again and not live under the confines of the trauma uh, from the abuse that she suffered. And so you guys provide a platform for survivors to do this. We are trying to provide a platform for survivors to do this in whatever way makes the most sense and comfortable and safe for that to happen. So I applaud what you all do. And that's why we were just so delighted to be able to be introduced to you and learn more about what you've been doing and really just see the effect of it. Uh, getting to know Christina and now these all these other women in, in this group came alive because of the platform you created. It helps that we quoted you on one of our episodes before we ever met. <laughs> and then we got an email and I was like, isn't this the person that we quoted? <laughs> well, let me speak to that, Kendra, because that was important to us because you talked, Rich, about people don't know how to talk about it at first and there is an evolving vocabulary. So in order to have a conversation about something that's sensitive, you have to learn what the vocabulary is right? And you have to know what's being said and how it's being received, right? And so I think it's important for Karen as an advocate to have her voice heard. And when she was quoted in some place that we didn't know about yet in the right context, right? That was a cue to me that Karen, who has an important voice in this conversation, was being heard and that, that those sentences were being folded into the broader conversation about this, right? And now here we are talking to you guys. <laughs> By us having this conversation, we're providing a model for other people who might not be comfortable to have this conversation yet. And we're giving examples of how to approach it and uh, ways to think about it that maybe they haven't thought about it yet. That's very powerful. Enough is a podcast centering on surviving abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like and subscribe and share with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, booking agent, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential. 